Well, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to take it and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. And if you need a Bible this morning, our gentle gentlemen are right there willing to put a Bible in your hands. Those Bibles look like this. And, you know, I got here this morning, I didn't have my own personal sword, and I went, boy, am I glad we have Bibles in this sanctuary. So uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 together. And then I'm going to take us back and we'll begin our verse-by-verse study of the book. But can I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> as I said, I would like you to join me as we read verses 1 through 3 together. Hebrews chapter 1, we read, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the power of his word, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Oops, I read verse four, sorry. <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your blood. Oh, God. And as we are here this hour, we just ask that you would uh, reveal yourself to us afresh as we look at who you are according to this, your author, the Holy Spirit, and whoever has penned these words. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, as promised last week, I, I said we're going to begin uh, the book of Hebrews uh, studying it verse by verse. I gave an introduction last week. If you weren't here, some of you women were away at uh, the retreat for Noah uh, that I heard was just a tremendous blessing. Each and every gal I've talked to said that God truly met you there and blessed you there and uh, powerfully worked in your hearts and lives there. And we're so grateful for each one of you gals who are God seekers. I think this ministry here itself is uh, a by-fruit, if you will. We are impacted by the praying saints and uh, the God-seeking women of this fellowship. Uh, our dear sister who had overseen our prayer chain ministry for quite a few years has just recently let it go. And, and I know that for many, many years, that ministry uh, was something that impacted us greatly and continues to be fruitful here. So in the introduction last week, I gave several important pieces of information. If you missed it and would like to go back and look, you're welcome, of course, to do that. Uh, our IT genius keeps things up on our website. And so you're, of course, able to go back and see that with the book of Hebrews, there was uh, some question about its, its place in canon that 
many through the years had actually uh, saw the book of Hebrews as uh, questionable in its authorship. And yet, by the time we get to the 14th century, uh, even though Luther himself had question about Hebrews, we, we see that it has been placed in canon, and rightly so, as we can clearly see the hand of the Holy Spirit in its author. It is true that the author of the book of Hebrews, though we really don't know who that is, some scholars say it could possibly be Paul because of similar language, uh, as I mentioned last week, there were those that thought it could have been Barnabas. Um, some thought it could have been Priscilla and Aquila, but that wouldn't have gone very far with the, the uh, awareness of a, uh, a woman writing scripture. It would have had a hard time to pass through uh, the protocols of what God has seen as the headship in uh the households, and what we do find, though, is that this author clearly had a Greek background. And the reason I say that is because the Greek language that is translated here in this book is of some of the most excellent and skilled form of the highest quality of the Greek language that it can provide. And why that's important to you and me this morning is because it's, it becomes obvious that though the writer had had uh, an education, if you will, or a skill in writing the Greek language, he didn't abandon that skill when it came to God's call upon his life to pen Hebrews. And similarly so in your life and mine, whatever skills God has given you. When we come to faith in Christ, it's not as though God is saying, okay, that was that life, now abandon that. I'm going to uh, develop something brand new, which he often does do as well. But he's not necessarily asking any of his children once having come to faith, to abandon the skills that he has placed in them. And as you begin and continue to walk with God today, you may be reminded and encouraged that God wants to take the skills you have and just transform you so that those skills are used to glorify himself. As Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 12, he says, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that ye not be conformed to the world, but that you be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might be able to prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. Things that I'm sure you probably know this morning, but always good to be reminded. Perhaps you're watching at home. We want to welcome you as well, and thank you for bringing us into your living room. But we also notice that the prophets are immediately catapulted to a place higher than uh, the Jewish culture had really known them to be. In Amos 3, 7, if you're taking notes this morning, we'll have several references. 
But in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, we're told that the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And so in the Hebrew culture, the Jewish culture, the prophet and, and what they had revealed of God was uh, the highest. Philo had said, quote, that a prophet is the interpreter of God who speaks within, unquote. A second century Christian writer named uh, Athena Garros said, quote, God moves the mouth of the prophets as some might play a musical instrument and God breathes into them the words that he once said. Just as a musician would breathe into a flute and play music. Now, part of that is absolutely in harmony with Scripture because we know that in 2 Timothy 3.16, we hear what or know what. All Scripture is inspired of God. The New International Version translates that into all Scripture is God-breathed. And is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. The prophets had a, a, a magnificent diversity in their lives and in their ministry to the nation of Israel and the uh, Gentile world. Reading through the Old Testament, we can gather much of that information, but we find, for instance, that Amos... Uh, is a cry for social justice. Isaiah, on the other hand, had a real clear grasp on the holiness of God. And none other than Hosea, in his own bitter experience, came to know very powerfully the forgiveness and love of God. But none of the prophets really could give the full picture. They just gave fragments, pieces, if you will, the picture of God. They're, though their testimony and their words were um, very powerful and full, they were still not the full picture. They were limited in what they were able to reveal. But not so with Jesus Christ. With Christ came the whole truth of God. The prophets of the methods, the methods of the prophets, rather, I'm sorry, uh, were interesting, to say the least. Some of them used speech, and when speech didn't work, uh, they used dramatic actions. But with Jesus, it was different. He revealed the Father not only in the word that he gave, but in the person that he was by being himself. We know in John 14, 9, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so at the end of the day, the prophets were limited as human beings in giving the full revelation of God. Give you an illustration. Just as a musician, no matter how accomplished, no matter how skilled, no matter how great that musician is, 
If the instrument within his hand is flawed, it won't make a beautiful sound. You put a pianist that can do anything on a piano on a piano that has strings broken or missing, and you're going to get a changed tune. You're going to get an altered melody. And such is the case with the prophets. They were a bit limited in being able to give the full picture of Jesus Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews saw. William Newell, in his commentary, put it best when he said this, quote, Christ does not speak to us in the book of Hebrews. He himself is the message to us here. So it's not the voice of, of words so much that the book of Hebrews is going to bring us. Not like at, at Mount Sinai when they, they would hear the rumbling and the, the cloud and be fearful of the, of the voice of the words. No, God speaks to us in the person of the Son in this book who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this morning, what we would like to do and will endeavor to do together is consider seven phenomenal and marvelous utterances that come to us through this Son, the Son of God. Seven marvelous utterances. The first, of course, right there, as we read it, it says in verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, it's important for me to, you know, have a, a given pace in order for us to get through all seven and, and have a time to take communion. And yet I, I don't want to, you know, rush necessarily some of these critical, important theological truths. And I encourage you to come each week to, with a notebook, a pen, a pencil, and take notes. It'll help you remember the things that Scripture has to say. But when we come to this first marvelous utterance that he, appoint, he was appointed heir of all things, the question arises, when and where was he appointed? When and where did that take place? Well, Revelation 3.18 tells us that he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Even before the world was, Christ was that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And we know, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that he laid his glory aside, he laid his power aside, he laid... Uh, his deity aside momentarily and became as a servant, humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. Title or office. And so thus coming into the world at the end of the Old Testament testimony, coming to the world physically, the Old Testament had its revelations of God, but then comes Christ, then comes Jesus. And God, having spoken to us in this Son, now appoints him heir. In fact, do you know where Jesus speaks of this about himself in the Gospels? 
In the parable of the wicked vine dressers in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, you can read it later, verses 1 through 12, Jesus gives a parable about a vineyard owner calling vine dressers to come and take care of the vineyard. And yet those vine dressers were wicked. It says that he sent one and they killed him. He sent another and they uh, threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he, the owner of the vineyard, sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, Mark 12, 6, he also sent him to them last saying, they will respect my son. But some of those vine dressers said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Why was he appointed heir? Because he alone is worthy. We find in the book of Revelation, if you've ever read through that and perhaps studied it, a very clear theological and important powerful truth as it relates to time and, and the, the person of God and the work of Jesus Christ. You remember in the fifth chapter of Revelation, the writer says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? It was a cry, who, who will be able to open the scroll and loose the seals thereof? Do you also remember this morning in Matthew chapter 4, what's classically known as the temptations of Jesus? Which after he was baptized, remember immediately he went into the wilderness and he was tempted of the devil. And what was that last temptation? Matthew 4 verses 8 through 11 Satan took him up to a highest pinnacle and showed him what? All the kingdoms of the world. And said to him, all of these can be yours. I will give them to you. Can you imagine Satan talking to the son of God, telling him, this is mine and I'll give it to you if you will bow down and worship me. Now, if you read that passage, guess what you find? You find that Jesus doesn't rebuke Satan and say, wait a minute, those aren't yours to give. No, he rebukes Satan and says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God alone. Get behind me, Satan. In other words... In the Jewish culture, when a piece of land was given, a title deed was given along with it. And that piece of paper was written on the front and on the back. 
In the Garden of Eden, when Eve took of the fruit, believing the lie and gave to Adam and he did eat and the both of their eyes were open and they knew they were naked and they tried to hide from God. What we know that to be critically as the fall of mankind, the entrance of sin into the world. And with that fall, guess what came? Yes, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But we live in a dispensation of time in which right now, this world also is under the power and control of God's adversary, the devil himself. And when the end of time comes and the, you know we're called up to be into heaven and John the Revelator writes about this, who is worthy to, to take the scroll and loose the seals? He's saying, who is worthy to take back the title deed of earth? Who's worthy? And no one in heaven and no one on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Can you say amen? He is worthy. That's why he is heir. The beginning of all time appointed. Why err? Because he is worthy. All things, how much can we express? Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. But some of us, myself included, when I came to this one, I went, oh, this is exciting. Proverbs 8, have you ever been there? And you might Take a moment, turn there real quickly. Proverbs 8, about all things being created by him. You can turn to the left in your Bible, about to just above the middle. Proverbs chapter 8. And I'll draw your attention to verse 25 and forward, which reads. Proverbs 8, 25 and forward before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. And of course, the, the eighth chapter of Proverbs speaks about wisdom primarily. And we know that Jesus Christ has been made unto us wisdom and sanctification and justification. So this is speaking of Christ. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. 
while as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primeval dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew the circle on the face of the deep, so much for flat earth theology, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as master craftsman, and I was daily in his delight, rejoicing always before him. Wow, what a powerful declaration of the fact that Jesus Christ are the hands that made all that we know. And yet some will say, probably no one in this sanctuary or watching at home within the sound of my voice, maybe no one, but some will say, well, but doesn't mankind, you know, have his power, his, his abilities, his, his uh, geniuses, right? Things that he's created. One commentator puts it this way. He says, oh, what did you O puppet, create. Because 1 Timothy 6, 7 says that we brought nothing into this world and it is clear we take nothing out. The very breath that you and I breathe right now. The very breath. Oh, Belshazzar did not know that, but Daniel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was able to remind him of that. Daniel 5.23, speaking and rebuking Belshazzar, he says, hey, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the little gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God, big G, Jehovah, who holds your very breath in his hands and owns all your ways you have not glorified. Is that true of you this morning? Did you walk into this sanctuary thinking that the Autopilot of breathing is something that you're still in command of. God holds every breath you breathe. And he knows which one will be your last and mine. All things. Jesus Christ. Heir. And appointed. Well, we will have to move quickly, won't we, at this pace? Second marvelous utterance. Through whom also he made the worlds. The original says ages. And remember, we probably, most of us have read this area in our Bible, Genesis 1-1, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And as we read through the, the creation account, 
we find two interesting words. In Genesis 1.1, and it's up on your screen this morning if you're taking note, in Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. That word there created is bara. It means to form or make something out of nothing. Nothing existed at all. There was, abs- it's hard for our minds to conceive that, but nothing, out of nothing, God created. And as we work through the creative account in Genesis 31, God saw what he had made, asa, and that is things made from something. And so what we find is that Christ, I don't fully understand this, but I, I can, you know, perhaps we can begin to kind of lay hold of it. God the Father, you know, out of nothing brings something, and then God the Son begins to make all things that we know. Beautiful. Because in each case, the word for God is Elohim, the plurality of God, not singular, plural, Elohim. And we, we see in the creative experience that uh, darkness was over the face of the earth and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. There's the third person of the Trinity, and God spoke. The word, in the beginning was the word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. So, through him, through whom also he did make the worlds. Third utterance, being the brightness of his glory. Now, we do read also in the Gospel of John, as John writes about God himself and then the Son of God. In verse 18 of uh, John's first chapter, he says that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has voiced him. God the Son has voiced God the Father. In the, again, in the original language, the word brightness there can either mean uh, a shining or a reflection. And here, uh, most likely means a shining, that he was the shining of God's glory. The fourth marvelous statement, that he was the express image of his person. Now again, follow the grammar. The text begins with the word God. So it's referring back to the Son who is the express image of the person of God. Again, the original language helps us uh, wrap ourselves around the importance of that. The word uh, express image would be uh, impress. And I'll draw a mental picture for us this morning, like an engraver. When an engraver takes uh, a solid material and through various tools engraves into this material an impression, and then you're to, if you were to take that impression 
and place that impression upon a transferable piece, if I were to take that piece that I had impressed upon and show you, then you would see what, what had been engraved. And so Jesus is the expressed image, the impress, the engravement of the substance of God. You notice there it says, the expressed image of his person. Not a, a physical view, but of the substance of who the Father is. That's Jesus. And aren't we clear this morning that so often there's this um, mixed view of, of who God is. The unbelieving world has its variety of views. Even the believing world has a variety of views as though God is, is sitting in the heavens and, and you know, looking down with a critical eye just trying to find who's doing right and who's doing wrong to bless them or curse them, to be favorable to them or not. And, and yet when Jesus came, he said, why did he come? Full of grace and truth. Now when he comes again, yes, he will come in judgment. But he came to give a right picture of the Father. And if you this morning hold some mental picture of a, of a judgmental, harsh, critical God, we need to go back and read through the Gospels. Because that's who the Father is to you and to me right now. When Christ comes, he will judge In the book of Deuteronomy, God told his children that they weren't to make an impression of anything that was supposed to reference who God was. You remember the golden calf and all the idolatry that went on through national Israel even prior to the time of Christ. Why? Because God knew if we, if we try to make an image of God or an impress of God, if we try and engrave our picture of who God is, it's going to look like we think God should look. <laughs> Hence the statues. The stained glasses. Remember me sharing last week about that filmmaker who wanted to hear God speaking, goes into a church and there's a stained glass and he says, speak to me, God, and the stained glass is silent. And he goes back to his apartment and writes this acclaimed film about people who are depressed that want to hear God speak and God remains silent. Unfortunately, that's not true. God does speak and he speaks and has spoken and is speaking in the person of his son. Are we listening? Do we hear? The fifth statement, powerful as it is, notice there, 
Also in verse 3, it says, upholding all things by the power of his word. The original word ferero means maintaining all things by the power of the word. In other words, the, the spoken word, the written word, the living word of God, more specifically, Jesus Christ himself still is maintaining everything. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, Psalm 119 90 verses, uh, ni verses 90 and 91, Psalms 119, the longest books in the Bible. I'll read it for you. One of my favorites. Verse 90 and 91 of Psalm 119 says, Your faithfulness endures to all generation. You established the earth and it abides, they, meaning the earth, continue this day according to your ordinances, according to your word. It continues. The, word, the, the earth continues. So Jesus Christ himself maintains this earth continuing by the power of, of his word. Now we we can't contest that his word, uh, even when he was here, spoken was powerful. Did he not say to Lazarus, "Lazarus, come forth"? And out of the grave, Lazarus came. Be healed, and they were healed. But even more deeply, his word which will remain forever. The earth will pass away, but thy word is forever, right? His word is maintaining the very thing that we're experiencing right at this moment. You're breathing, we're sitting, we're here. It hasn't all come apart. Do you remember the horrific explosions of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? When science developed the ability to explode an atom, known as the atomic bomb. In their search, and I'll try and get this as right as possible, in their discovery, they discovered that all matter is combined of atoms, and that within the atom, there's the nucleus, and then there's the proton and the neutron. And these two are are different entities. They, in fact, are pushing away from each other. One is a positive, one is negative, the proton and neutron, within the nucleus of the atom. What they still don't understand is what holds the atom together. They have yet to figure that out. And if they would just turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, they would recognize that it is God Almighty and his living word that is saying, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm holding it together until that last person that I want to see in glory gets saved. And then, well, then he comes and we meet him in the air and there's the seven years and then there's, 
the thousand years and all that, but at some point he's going to say, done. Today, right now, he is maintaining all things by the power of his word. Sixth powerful statement, most applicable to us this morning and this moment, which says, when he, notice, by himself purged our sins. You might underline that in your Bible. Underline it in the Bible of the person next to you. They won't get angry. They just, I don't mark my Bible. Yes, you're marked. Oh, all right. The phrase by himself is not in what we call the Nestle Elan in you. They left that out. But in the received text, it is there. Imperative and important because no one else of the triune Godhead could do that. Think about it. God the Father, God who is spirit, Isn't this a great conversation? God who is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He he could not, he would not, he didn't, I'm not saying could, he did not by himself purge our sins, take away our sins. For one reason specifically is because he is spirit, not flesh and blood. So he had no blood. And the word of God tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no removal of sin. So God the Father did not. God the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said will never bring attention to himself... Only when he speaks, he will speak of the things that I have said. Never, ever does the Holy Spirit endeavor to bring attention to himself. He seeks to bring attention to Jesus Christ. One of the places, indeed, where I would sit down and debate with hyper-Pentecostalism and hyper-Pentecostal movements that are so, you know, intent on seeing gifts of the Spirit and movements of the Spirit and the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Yeah, okay, but the Spirit is supposed to bring attention to Jesus. And the Spirit is not flesh and blood. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And so... The author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this critical, theological, and powerful, practical, personal truth, is that Jesus by himself is the one that obediently went to the cross, obediently and willingly took upon him our sin, allowing it to be nailed to the cross so that you and you and you and you and I would not have to bear the guilt of never being accepted by God the Father. 
glory, hallelujah, by himself. And having purged our sins, what does that mean? That we're sinless? No, it means that he took our sin. He took the penalty of our sin for every one of us. There are none good, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Which one of us in this room or on the planet Earth is holy enough to stand next to a holy God? None. Except Christ. Who knew no sin, but became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Wrap your head around that for a minute. How beautiful. How glorious. How deep. How past finding out are the ways. And having done that, Lastly, he sat down at the right hand, the representative right hand of the majesty on God, of majesty on high, in which he is still there. And the Bible tells us that he ever makes intercession for us, interceding to the Father on your behalf, interceding to the Father on my behalf. Always interceding to the Father. And the accuser of the brethren stands night and day. No, they didn't. They, rah, 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 rah. And Jesus says, no, my blood, my blood, my blood, my blood, Father, my blood, Father. They're under my blood. They're under my blood. Say that with me. Under the blood. Hallelujah. What do we do with all that? I don't know. It's like you chew on it for a while. Let it sink in throughout this week that these are the seven things the person of the Son speaks to us. And watch how it will rock your boat in your personal walk with God, delivering from doubt and fear and, and, and feeling you know, unworthy. For in Christ, we've become the righteousness of God. I pray that this would be our diet our scriptural diet for a handful of days here. Just meditate upon it. Next week we'll start with his supremacy over the angels as well. Will you bow and pray with me this morning as the brethren come? Lord, it's an amazing thing that
mercy you have done. And as we look at the truth of your word, and as we contemplate that truth to us, we, we stand amazed this morning. We sit in awe. We bow in reverence that you said whenever we take this cup and this bread that we're ready to remember you. Whoever that author was that you ordained to write these words clearly gives us much to remember. And we acknowledge that this morning, Lord, in the blood of Christ and his body alone, you have cast our sin as far as the east is from the west to remember it no more. The liberty that that brings to each of us this hour the joy we have because of your sacrifice. We bow this morning. We receive this morning. And we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The men are going to pass out the elements this morning. Partake together. I know a place, a wonderful place where accused and condemned find mercy and grace, where the wrongs we have done. And the wrongs done to us were nailed there with you, there on the cross. I know a place, a wonderful Accused and condemned, find mercy and grace where the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us nailed there with you there on the cross at the cross. The cross, you gave us life again at the cross. You died for our sin at the cross. You gave us life. I know a place. 
find mercy and grace where the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us are nailed there with you there on the cross at the cross celebration it's a remembrance it is something to rejoice in and recognize that uh, we've been set free we've been forgiven we've been redeemed purchased back that which was lost has been found that which was broken has been mended that which was dead is alive. He met with those that had followed him, sought to know him, and would only come to fully understand him after his resurrection. And on that night that he was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it. Let's go ahead and break this piece together. Ready? And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it, and as you do, remember me. Let's partake together. Thank you, Lord. The Bible says that in the same manner, he took the cup, the cup of joy, and he lifted it, he blessed it, he gave thanks for it, and he said to his followers, as he would say to you and I, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. 
As we take this cup this morning, we're remembering what it is that washes and cleanses us and makes us clean before the Father. Not works of any sort, but a simple faith in the all-efficient blood of Jesus. He said, take, drink it, and as you do, remember me. Let's partake. Join me in prayer as we thank the Lord this morning. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice, your, your mercies, your grace, forgiveness, your love for us, O oh God. To which this morning we simply declare you as our Savior and as our Lord and we rejoice and in Jesus name everyone said let's stand